Good morning, Christ Chapel. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. A special welcome to those of you that are joining us out in West Campus and South Campus and Converge and Hive and streaming live. We appreciate you streaming along with us. Steve Farrar, in his book Point Man, long time ago, relates a story of some tourists that were visiting England. I'm going to quote this because I can't say it any better than he's written it. It says, a group of appreciative tourists watched a demonstration put on by the Royal Artillery of the Queen. A six-man team worked with flawless precision. Actually, only five of them worked with precision. One of the soldiers positioned himself about 25 yards away from the cannon and stood at attention during the entire exhibition doing nothing. Well, after the exhibition, one of the tourists asked the staff officer to explain the duty of the man standing off to the side. Well, he's number six, came the reply. Yes, but what does number six do? Well, he stands at attention. Well, yes, I know, but why does number six stand at attention? No one knew why number six was standing over there at attention. None of the other five knew. The man himself didn't know. Even the commanding officer didn't know. After many hours of research of training, old training manuals of uh, the Royal Artillery, it became clear what number six was supposed to do. He was to hold the horses. But why was number six standing at attention now? Because he was appointed to do so. Did he have any idea what he was supposed to do? Absolutely not. You know, you ever feel like you're number six in life? You know, where you're not quite sure exactly why you're here? Are you feeling like you're just kind of off to one side, just kind of along for the ride? Maybe uh, due to something maybe in your past, you feel maybe that you're disconnected, alienated, far off, not quite in touch with what's going on, with, with, with what's going on. One individual wrote, he said, I've got a clock that tells me when to get up, but some days I need one to tell me why. You have been created to be a lot more than number six. You were not created to just stand off on the sidelines doing nothing, standing at attention. You've been created to be used of God to fulfill his purpose. God has uniquely created you for a purpose. But why? Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. In your pew Bibles, we are still on page 1. Still on page 1 of your pew Bible. And as you're turning, let me just refresh you a little bit about the background of this, this passage. We're still looking, as Cody introduced last week, we're still looking at the sixth day of creation. And on the sixth day of creation, God creates living creatures and man. And last week, as Ken brought out, Cody preached on verses 26 and 27, right before this, that you are different, you are distinct, 
You are unique. You have been created with a unique capacity, a unique dignity, a unique responsibility. You have a unique capacity to know God, to love God, to obey God with your mind, with your emotions, and your will. And God created people to reflect the image of God and to grow in his likeness. So last week, we learned that we are to reflect God's image, but now God expands on that a little bit. Look at verse one, or chapter one, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is often referred to in theology as kind of the creation mandate or the dominion mandate. And my job here is to explain this verse and make it look easy. And in one sense, it is very easy. This is what God says to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over every living thing. So in essence, it says, reflect his image, reproduce his heritage, and rule over creation. The end. If, so if I was preaching this message in the garden to two people, it would be very, very clear. But on the other hand, a lot has happened since Adam and Eve. And one of the big events that happens since Adam and Eve, they were in the garden. This was pre-fall. We know in chapter 3 that man falls. Sin enters the world. Things change. And when God gave the commands here to Adam and Eve, they were in an unfallen condition. We are in a fallen condition. We also know that the flood happens in Genesis chapter 6. The law is given in Exodus. Jesus, the, the lamb, the perfect lamb that God gave to take away the sin of the world, he comes, he dies in our place, he rises from the dead. He's coming again. We know that. We know that from Scripture that Jesus teaches that we're not of this world in John chapter 15. In fact, Jesus sends us back into the world with the Great Commission. We know from the book of Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 8 that at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We know that from Romans that creation groans but Jesus, who is the exact image and representation of the Father, is the one who is ultimately going to restore the world when he comes in his kingdom. And in Isaiah 65, it describes a time when the wolf and the lamb will graze together in the, in the kingdom. See, Jesus is the one who brings in the kingdom, and my hope is in him, the one who will establish his kingdom in fulfillment of the promises that he made to Abraham. So while it's easy to look at this and exposit this in the context of Genesis 1, there's a lot more that's happened since then. A lot has happened since Adam and Eve. And so 
how are we going to approach this passage for today? What are we supposed to do? We know that all scripture is breathed. We know that for what was written in Romans chapter 15, it says, for what was written in former days was written for our instruction so that we might have hope. And I think that there is some hope and there is some instruction. Why did he create me? What am I to do now in this fallen condition that I'm in? Two things. First, verse 28, God created people to be fruitful and multiply. He created you to be fruitful and multiply. Notice in verse 28, it says, first off, it says, and God blessed them. God blessed them. This is both a pronouncement of a blessing, but it's also a preamble to what he's going to say later on. It says, and he, if he blessed them, that's more of a pronouncement than it is just a statement of, of affection. It's declaring that the, the couple is good, the couple is accepted and favored by God. They're properly related to the Father. That's what it was in the garden. He blessed them, he said, it is good. It's good. And we see that there's a bunch of verbs that follow, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, have dominion. And from that blessing, we see the first of the three verbs, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. See, human life, male and female, have a great capacity and responsibility by virtue of being in the image of God. And the first is that humans may produce life, their own spiritual, physical life. If humans are to imitate God and be in the image of God, then creating life is a basic part of that task. Man and woman can produce a living soul, and that privilege is a, a part of their blessing from God, a blessing that we realize includes divine enablement. And so for believers, childbirth is an act of worship. It's a sharing in the work of God that he has in, entrusted into our care. But how are we going to do that? Well, first, people can be fruitful and multiply through a godly marriage, of course. Sexual union is God's ordained method of implementing this command, and especially as it was to Adam and Eve there in the garden. And when God gave the command to Adam and Eve, they were in that unfallen condition. Therefore, all of the descendants that they would have produced would have been godly, a godly heritage. But that's what God is interested in. God is interested in raising up a godly a heritage, godly descendants. And God has charged the human race to raise up that heritage. But he didn't do it, and he didn't give it that command with just by ourselves. God gave us a marriage partner. And oneness in marriage is necessary in order to manage that God's creation effectively. As we model that union that God has for us here on earth. So we can be fruitful and multiply through a godly, godly marriage, but we can also be fruitful and multiply through a godly heritage as well. I think it's very appropriate at this point to be able to expand this 
beyond just Adam and Eve. In other words, I don't think the text for today's audience doesn't mean that a person needs to get married and have children to be able to fulfill God's purpose. Otherwise, Jesus and Paul would have not been able to do that. God hasn't charged every human being with having children. Many are unable to produce. And consequently, I think that stretching this command now to try to support the view that God wants every person to bear as many children as they possibly can probably goes beyond what, what's intended. I think it's very valid to have kind of a spiritual application to this verse. That part of our purpose here is to reproduce a godly heritage. Maybe not just with our own children, but also bearing witness of the saving grace that we have to others around us so that others would be able to come and know their creator and the, and the purpose that they have for being here. Children are definitely a blessing from God, but we can have a very effective ministry and create a godly heritage outside of our unique family. And God reiterates his command to Noah in Genesis chapter 9-1. He says, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. And let me just add here, one of the questions that usually comes up is, you know, when God says, fill the earth, wouldn't this command lead to overpopulation? I don't think so. You know, nothing's impossible with God. If sin and death had not entered the world, had not entered the world, I believe that man and animals would have filled the earth, not overfilled the earth. But the question becomes, are you being faithful to what God has commanded you to do? That's the question. We realize, you know, that there are many people that are dealing with the, the trauma and the, the heart. Of, of infertility. Let me just say our heart goes out. We have helps for you here at Christ Chapel. If you look on the back of your sermon notes, you'll see a wait with me ministry. I'd, I'd point you towards some of the ministries that are here at Christ Chapel to be able to walk with you through that journey, to be able to process what God has for you in that journey. But you can be involved in reproducing a godly heritage no matter where you are and no matter where you are serving. I can remember uh, my first year of seminary, one of the professors was unpacking 2 Timothy 2.2. 2 Timothy 2.2 basically says, you know, what you've heard with, from me, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that prof was going through a, a multiplication process that, you know, if you, one person talks to one person and then two people talk to two and four talk to four and eight to eight, you know, the multiplication process. And pretty soon over an ever-expanding multiplication process, there's a lot of people that come to know Christ and a lot of people that, that are growing in Christ. And I can remember saying to myself as I listened to that prof kind of unfold that multiplication process, saying to myself at that time, I pray that that process does not break down with me. It might break down with somebody else. I can't be responsible for somebody else. But I can be responsible for me. And I pray that that process doesn't break down with me. He says, be fruitful. Multiply. 
get to work. Create and help create a godly heritage. God created people to be fruitful and multiply, but God created people also to have dominion over, over creation. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our last two verbs are here in our verbs of five. Subdue and have dominion. God gave the right to rule over creation. And subdue here, the word actually means to need, like need bread. Uh, whereas have to, dominion is a little bit stronger verb, and it means to stamp down. Now, it could possibly, possibly be seen in a military context to conquer and to rule. But unfortunately, in this context, in Genesis chapter 1, there's no actual conflict going on. I mean, we are in a perfect unfallen fallen state. We're in the garden. Everything that God had made is pronounced good. We're to subdue and have dominion over the birds and the, the fish and other living things that are, that are there. So how are we to view this for today? Well, there's really three options, and it's important that we kind of pause here and just kind of talk about those three options because there's been a lot of discussion about it over the last year or so. You know, on the one side of the spectrum of how do you take the subdue and have dominion, the first option is that it's directed only to Adam and Eve and has no relevance to us at all. Well, unfortunately, we're still in the image of God and we're still his representation. So no relevance is one. On the other side of the spectrum, so if you go from one side to the spectrum to the other side of the spectrum, the other side, the second option is probably the most controversial. And this would, include, this would extend the phrase dominion over creation to include people and government. And this view would say that we're to bring the world under Christian dominion. In other words, to those who hold a view, we have an obligation to apply Christian concepts to our culture. The Great Commission then is seen really as an expansion then of this mandate that God gives in Genesis chapter 1. Unfortunately, this view waver over on the other side is a little bit difficult to harmonize with Scripture. Uh, at face value reading of what's going on here in Genesis 1 seems to indicate that we have dominion over created things and not man. Plus the fact, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God in Genesis chapter 3, I mean Romans chapter 3. And that includes human government. God warned Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8 not to take a king because he realized that humans were fallible. And attempting to force individuals to adhere to Christian principles and concepts is difficult when they do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. In the middle is the third option between the one extreme over here and the other extreme over here. In the middle is the third option. 
And the third option sees the dominion over creation as the created things over the fish and the birds and the creeping things of the earth and doesn't include people. You know, the Great Commission now is linked really to this mandate, but leaves the results to God's hands. A lot has changed since Adam and Eve, and part of our stewardship here is to reflect God's image and influence culture towards those attitudes that reflect God's will, but recognize that we can't mandate acceptance. Only the Holy Spirit is able to bring about a change in a person's heart. And as believers, we're not of this world. Our responsibility is to reflect God to a fallen world. It gets down to whether or not we're going to mandate the culture or influence culture. And God gave dominion to Adam and Eve over creation, not people. And the Spirit of God is the only one that's going to be able to change a person's heart. But notice a few implications of the mandate that, that God gives to us here. The first is that to have dominion over creation implies that there's some work that needs to be done. We need to get to work filling the earth and to get to work in doing his purpose. The command subdue it implies that there's work even in the perfect setting of the garden. And so he says this in the garden. He says, hey, subdue it. Work is going to happen to bring creation under man's rightful dominion. Meaning we're to care for the salmon. We're to care for the bald eagle. We're to care for the cattle. As image bearers of God, we have given, been given that responsibility as vice regents over God's creation. And that's going to take some labor. But that's what God's created us to do. It's to manage it well. You've been created for something more. And we've been created with the privilege of working and managing creation that glorifies and honors him. We're not to just sit by idly. But second, to have dominion over creation implies that we need to be good stewards of what God has entrusted into our care. You know, fallen man has gone two directions since this has been given. He's either tended to spoil creation through forms of disregard, or he's been ruled by creation, either through a false worship of nature or allowing the fruit of the vine to control you rather than you controlling the fruit of the vine. It's interesting, the same command was given to Noah, who then immediately failed and allowed the vine to control him through drunkenness. Those two exist, two extremes exist today, but neither extreme is truly biblical. We need to be good stewards of what God's creation, of God's creation, reflecting his image. And thirdly, notice that one of the implications is to have dominion over creation means that God designed nature to serve man. Look at what it says in verse 29 through 30. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, 
I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. Notice verse 29, very interesting. It suggests that man was originally vegetarian. In other words, there were no sirloin steaks in the garden. After the flood, Genesis 6 or Genesis 9, God gives permission to eat meat as long as it's not with the blood. Isaiah prophesies in chapter 11 and also in chapter 65 that in the millennial kingdom, when the world is under the reign of Christ, that animals will not pray, but the bear and the lion will graze like cow and restores creation to that state uh, back to the pre-fall. So does that mean that it's more spiritual to be a vegetarian? Well, before you jump to that conclusion, remember that the Lord and two angels ate meat when they visited Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. Also, Jesus ate roasted lamb in the Passover as well as broiled fish after the resurrection. So while you are free not to eat meat, it has nothing really to do with your spirituality or your sanctification. Um, it's just that you are choosing to abstain. You've been created for a unique purpose. You've been created for a greater purpose. God created people to reflect his image, reproduce a godly heritage, and exercise dominion over creation. And I think that there's a kind of a timeless truth here that we have a responsibility as image bearers to reflect godliness in this world. And so whatever you do, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the king. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the king. Live in light of who you are. Two suggestions. One. Be good stewards of what God has placed under your charge. Be good stewards. God has placed you in a unique place of service, wherever that might be. Your family, your job, your community, your friends, your associates, your acquaintances. You need to be a good steward of what God has granted to you. Christ was a servant. And we're to be conformed to his image. And we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. So whether or not you're a businessman or an insurance man or a common man, whether you're a scientist, a doctor, a nurse, a Christian worker, whether or not you're skilled in literature or skilled in the arts, whatever you work or wherever you work or wherever you serve, we should be the best that we can be for the glory of God. Reflecting his image, reproducing a godly heritage, being good stewards of what God has entrusted into our care. We need to be the best that we can be so that we can offer it back to God through an act of worship. And secondly, be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to be able to accomplish his purpose. Be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purpose. 
We can only accomplish what God has called us to do through the power of the Spirit. We are not going to be able to pull this off on our own power. I've often said, you know, there's only two ways to live life. You can live life in the power of the Spirit, or you can live life in the power of the flesh. God's calling us here to live life in the power of the Spirit. Ministry flows out of our walk with God. We need to be a follower of Jesus Christ as we do his work. And Jesus, as I said, was a servant king. But think of some of those great examples in the Old Testament that we have. Joseph or Daniel. I mean, those guys lived in very difficult times. I mean, they they lived in captivity. They weren't exercising any dominion over anybody. They were living in captivity. And yet, they conducted themselves with godliness and dignity and reliance upon God in whatever circumstances they were were facing. Only Jesus Christ is going to be able to bring in the kingdom. My hope is in him. My dependence is upon him and not something else. Without him, we can do nothing. With him, we can fulfill God's purpose. And we were created to know and grow and be like the one in whose image you were created, and that image is Jesus Christ. I think you're going to be restless. I think you're going to be confused. I think you're going to be lacking a fulfillment until you begin to live in line with what God's got for you. You know, if you've never come to a place where you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's the place that you start. It's coming to a place where you've placed your trust in him and him alone. We're all sinners. Jesus Christ died for our sins and arose from the dead. And he's coming back. And he's asking us not to try to be a good person, do all the good things, saying, place your faith and trust in me. It's the only way to be able to get right with with God. If If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's where it starts. But if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the king. You are an ambassador for Christ. Be the best that you can be in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is always applicable, whether or not it's in the garden, or whether or not it's in Fort Worth. We thank you that you call us to represent you wherever we are. We recognize that in our own power, that's an impossible task to be able to accomplish, but it's only through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Father, for those that do not know you, I pray that that you would bring them to yourself and that they would place their trust in you and you alone. For those that are here that have already made that decision to follow you, I pray that they would remain dependent upon you, 
give them a joy and peace in, in this world that goes beyond just the chaos that we see happening. Make us worthy ambassadors. For we pray all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.